city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. Less than 1% of cases have an insanity plea entered on behalf of the defendant, but between 15 and 25% of these are successful. So not a high success rate for the insanity defense plea. But what is insanity? Well, who better to discuss insanity, definitions, diagnosis, and the insanity plea than my favorite forensic psychologist, Dr. Joni Johnson. Dr. Joni, welcome again to A Thread of Evidence. It is a pleasure as always. (laughs) So (laughs) let's get right down into this thing. And why don't you tell us, as a board-certified forensic psychologist, what is insanity? So insanity, unlike mental illness, is a legal concept. It's not a clinical one. And it basically is saying that the person who does have a mental illness, when they were committing a certain crime, was so impaired because of that mental illness that they really couldn't understand the difference between right or wrong, or they couldn't appreciate the consequences of what they were doing. Wow. So... What then is the insanity defense? You've got a you've got a criminal defendant. He commits a violent, horrific crime. Usually, at least in my experience as a detective, uh, these have all been homicides. Some of them have been brutal homicides. And as a matter of fact, I'm working one right now in another state uh, that I've talked with you about. And and uh, that person, uh, you know, was in a psychiatric facility. Uh, that person was clearly insane. So what is the insanity defense? So the insanity defense is something that the defense puts forth when they really do believe that their defendant, A, has a mental illness, B, committed a crime, C, there was a relationship between the mental illness and the crime, and that because of the symptoms the person was experiencing at the time of the crime, again, they, they, were, they shouldn't be held criminally responsible. Well, let's go a little bit into that. I'm sure you've got a whole bunch of different cases that you can talk with us about. Can you start us out with an example of uh, of one case that that you had as a forensic psychologist, where where the insanity, where there was an issue of insanity, perhaps a psychiatric diagnosis of insanity, and then the insanity defense was applied. Absolutely. So actually two come to mind, but I'll tell you about the first one that pops into my head. Um, It was a young man who had no criminal history, um, who did though appear to be developing a serious mental illness. He had been talking to himself several days before. This was actually right after 9-11 too. And this is an important piece of this story. He had been talking to himself. People were worried about him. He had been acting kind of bizarrely. He had been talking about joining all of these different military forces. He, um, he just wasn't himself. And his parents, like a lot of people, they just don't know what to do when you see somebody begin to deteriorate. It's like, okay, do I call the police? Do I call a psychologist? What do I do? And so they were trying to work with him. One day he was driving down um, 
the I-5, and he looked over and he saw um, a Middle Eastern man who was dressed with a turban, and he had been talking again about all this, you know, on national security, and he developed this belief at this point that this particular person was on the way to the airport in San Diego to blow it up. And so he decided that it was his duty to be a hero in this case and save all of the unsuspecting soon-to-be passengers on the airlines that were going to be flying out of San Diego. And so what he does is he proceeds to run this car off the road. The car ends up running off the road, luckily did not wreck, came to a stop. Um, Here's this young man who's screaming at this this couple. It was actually a couple. um, Screaming at them, talking about national security. He ends up ramming his car into the back of their car, um, citing all these, again, all these patriotic slogans. Fortunately for everybody, the police were called. They came. They arrested him and took him away. The, the couple in the car was not seriously injured. And in this particular case, the defense attorney was um, interested in putting forth an insanity defense. And they were successful in doing that. And I was called to evaluate this particular defendant. And it was really clear that he was a person who, again, had no criminal record. He was exhibiting some bizarre behavior beforehand. He was delusional. He was hearing voices. And I forgot to mention that God in the car did tell him to run this person off the road. And so Fortunately, his defense attorney was able to talk to the judge. The judge agreed that this was a case of, um, you know, somebody who was suffering under mental illness and not only did not appreciate the right or wrong part of this whole situation, but really thought he was going to be a hero and help. And so they were able to get treatment for him. Oh, no, that's excellent. Uh, You know, let's just go back over, you know, the the basic uh, different types of mental illness. I, I'm not going to steal the thunder on this one. I, I've already assessed what, what the person's mental illness is, but let's go through the different classifications of different types of mental illness. And, and Joni, if you could just, you know, maybe start out with schizophrenia and, and talk about what that is and how does it present itself? If you were to define schizophrenia as a mental illness, how would you do that? Schizophrenia is, and we actually almost believe it's a medical illness at this point because there seems to be um, a biological, if not basis for it, a very strong predisposition for it. But it usually starts in middle to late adolescence. Sometimes the person will experience almost like these kind of warning signs. Um, They'll begin to all of a sudden withdraw from their family. They kind of hibernate in their room. They, um, again, start talking about kind of unusual things. And what you'll see, Dr. Ron, is kind of a gradual deterioration over time. And then what they do is begin to develop some what we call active symptoms, which are the things that we talked about, hallucinations, um, delusions, hallucinations, of course, mainly auditory ones. So people will say, "Um, I hear God talking to me. I hear people making fun of me. And of course, these people for this particular person are real. So it's not like I'm hearing these voices in my head. It's I'm hearing these voices outside of myself. You you know, a a great example of, uh, to me, of schizophrenia, as well as, you know, inanimate objects are talking to this person or animals are talking to this person. And and what calls to mind to me back in New York and Brooklyn was the son of Sam. Do you remember that case? 
I do remember that son, the Son of Sam case. Yeah, and I think it was his know, dog. Yeah, exactly. His dog, is Sam, right, was giving him, uh, you know, commands to go out and, and go kill these people. Uh, and I, you know, as a negotiator, you know, as a detective and I was a negotiator, I, I would come in contact with people with, with mental health illnesses. And one of the biggest ones I had, you know, I refer to them as psychomedical emergencies, uh, was people who were experiencing or presenting with schizophrenia. Let's do another one. What is another uh, mental health um, illness that you could define for us? These are great questions because we're really talking about the kinds of mental illnesses that have a chance of an NGRI defense because there are plenty of mental illnesses that they're just not going to work because of the requirements uh, legally. So we talked about schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, particularly somebody who's in a manic phase. Um, will oftentimes develop, again, religious delusions. Uh, they'll have incredibly poor judgment. I had a woman one time, I'll never forget, who called up a Neiman Marcus while she was in a psychiatric hospital and managed to convince them to send her like 50 fur coats that she was going to purchase. Wow. Um, and, you know, and so it's just, it, again, it's a, it's a loss of touch with reality. Okay, so let's, you know, you, you say they're manic. So, uh, Tell us what mania is and, and what people would look for to determine, to evaluate, assess whether somebody was manic. What, what kind of things are we looking at? So we used to, we used to talk, call it manic depressive. You're Correct. probably familiar with that term. And now right, it's bipolar sure. disorder. So people unfortunately think that it's this swing from severe depression to happiness, you know, being elated. And, right. and that can, down, exactly. Right. And it is a roller coaster, but it's different. And, and what I mean by that is it's not uncommon for somebody who's entering a manic phase to initially feel happier and to feel like they have more energy, they don't need as much sleep. So it, they can even be more productive at the very beginning stages. But what happens is that that tends to exacerbate and get worse. And so all of a sudden, this person's good mood becomes agitation. They become irritable. Um, they become they they can't when they're talking to people they jump from one topic to the next mm -hmm. because they can't focus um, they have grandiose delusions they'll talk about business but not in a real sense i'm going to sell five million you know shoes in the next two months i'm going to be the president of the united states so it's just kind of like you see this middle part of it or this beginning part of the mania where it is productive for that person and then it progresses and it, and it becomes really um, destructive for that person not only in terms of how they are with other people again they scare other people they're pacing they're agitated they have these grandiose delusions they're, they can't carry on a sentence because they jump from one topic to the next if somebody is truly in a manic episode you know and I would know that something is wrong. All right. So let's, you know, in referring to these as, you know, psychomedical emergencies. So, and, and this is going to be a difficult question. So I'm really interested in, in seeing how you I explain this out. So Joni, a lot of the things that you've been talking about with respect to, uh, you know, a manic disorder, that also is, you know, the pacing, the, you know, the rapid, you know, thoughts and, uh, you know, all of those things. Uh, and the elation and all of this is also very symptomatic of a person that would be under the influence perhaps of a stimulant such as methamphetamine, maybe a synthetic cannabinoid like, you know, bath salts or K2 or spice or maybe even ecstasy. How does a person 
tell the difference between a person that's experiencing a mental health disorder like mania or bipolar disorder and a person who's under the influence of something like maybe methamphetamine or a synthetic drug, especially our police officers in the field. And I know they're not, you're diagnostic, but they're non-diagnostic. So how does a person who's non-diagnostic try to tell the difference? Well, I think if you're a police officer in the field, you're dealing with behavior. Correct. So you probably don't even need to think about, is this drug-induced? Is this mania? What you do need to do, though, is focus on the behaviors that are putting that person at risk or somebody else at risk and deal with those. Okay. Then when you get that person into a psychiatric hospital, that's the clinicians then, you know, to do all the things, whether it's administer a drug screen, whether it's to get the person's history, et cetera, et cetera, to make that diagnosis. Boy, you know, I think that's a, that's a great answer. It's a very simple answer, and it makes so much sense to me because when I teach this component of mental health or psychomedical emergencies, I tell them, look, you're non-diagnostic. Okay, those are for board-certified psychologists, psychiatrists, but you do have the power to evaluate and assess. You know, in, in, in California that you're familiar with, Joni, because your practice is there, we would refer to 5150 of the Welfare and Institutions Code and the criteria being, you know, gravely disabled, a danger to themselves, a danger to other people. And when I'm talking to them about the elements of 5150, I tell them, look, there's four basic criteria or cues because uh, we don't use medical language in law enforcement. We talk about cues rather than presentations. And that is physical, verbal, behavioral, and psychological. Does that make sense to you as a board-certified psychologist? It makes complete sense to me yeah. because safety is what you're most interested in. So and I so that's what you're going to focus on. And I really like that answer. Okay, so let's talk about depression. Depression, again, is one of these things we throw around. I'm so depressed today, or I just felt so depressed last week. And and it's a good thing in that we're familiar with that term. Everybody knows what depression is in theory. But the, I think the challenge for all of us is to realize that clinical depression, which is what we're talking about, is really something that's much bigger than that. And it's really different. And it requires, for example, a person to have these severe symptoms over for two weeks or longer every day. Um, it involves not only a person who's, being, who's sad, uh, they might be withdrawn, they might have less of an appetite, they might begin to lose weight, they might have trouble sleeping or they might sleep too much. So it's a whole cluster of these symptoms right. that people, that they may think about suicide, which of course is very common. And when somebody is depressed enough, they can actually develop, you know, delusions and hear voices telling them to kill themselves, um, you know, these beliefs that they're no good and that somebody's torturing them deliberately. So it really can be a much more serious thing than most of us think about when we talk about being depressed you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. That's great. And how about paranoia? Yeah, paranoia. You know, it's so funny because all of these are continuum. I mean, the, our, D, our DSM-5 is very clear about, okay, when oh, no, you, you have tell these... tell what the DSM-5 is, John. Okay, our Diagnostic <laughs> and Statistical Manual, it's the fifth edition. It's kind of like the Bible That's right. for read, mental health. We I have read professionals. that Bible all the time. <laughs> yeah, we do. It's pretty interesting, and it changes every 10 years or so because we learn information and do more research. But it really is kind of the thing that we use to go and say, okay, let's look at trying to diagnose this person. And let's look at these different diagnoses. What are the differential diagnoses? In other words, um, does a person have depression? Maybe what are things that look like depression the person might also have that we have to consider? 
And so it lists all the different symptoms of the different disorders that we recognize in the United States as mental illnesses. And that's great. Now, Joni, just in your professional opinion, is there any one of the mental illnesses that we've talked about so far that is, you know, more dangerous than any other or more prevalent and dangerous uh, than any of the others that we've mentioned? That's so interesting. And I guess the answer probably is yes, with uh, a caveat there. So we know that, for example, people who have been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, this gets back to your idea about paranoia, who believes people are trying to control them. Um, They're trying to insert thoughts in their brain. They're monitoring them in some way. That people with this diagnosis in general, but really, I think it's better to look at specific symptoms. So for example, we do know that People who have command hallucinations, and what that means very generally is their voice is not only talking to them, but it's telling them to do things. It's saying, you need to kill this person. You need to hurt yourself. You need to do A, B, and C. You need to exercise the demon out of your child. Um, So it's not just somebody who's hearing voices in general, but it's hearing voices telling them very specifically what to do. That is a, uh, a symptom that we are concerned about from a risk perspective, because you can imagine it's hard to ignore that, especially if you're hearing it 500 times a day. And what is decompensating behavior? Decompensating behavior is just basically, first of all, it's a change in behavior, and it's a change in behavior for the worse. So, for example, I have a, you know, you know, I have three teenagers in my house. I have one, for example, I'm just making this up, who is going to school, he's doing well, maybe he's got ups and downs, but overall he's functioning pretty well. He takes a shower every day, um, you know, and all of a sudden I'm noticing that he just doesn't seem to care about his personal appearance. I can't get him to get up in the morning. He doesn't want to take a shower. He's now missing school. So it's, a, it's just a deterioration in how somebody's doing. Okay. Well, listen, I want to get into the insanity defense and how it's used, and I've got so many questions for you. Let's talk about this right after this break. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field, and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, at Amazon.com. You're listening to A Thread of Evidence with Dr. Ron Martinelli and my favorite co-host, board-certified forensic psychologist, Dr. Joni Johnson from California. So, Joni, let me ask you this question. So, how do you decide if someone is legally insane? It's really a challenging process because when you think about it, we're not evaluating how the person is today. When I see this person, we have to go back and try to reconstruct this story about how that person was at the time of the crime. And so that involves a lot of different steps. Um, First of all, looking at all the evidence, the police reports, the medical records, mental health records, the person's criminal history if they have one. We look at the witness statements. We look at... um, 
you know, we look at all these different factors. We may even visit the crime scene. Then we're going to interview family members or friends, particularly those who saw that person around the time of the crime. And then, of course, we're going to interview the defendant and possibly and probably, in my case, do some psychological testing on this person. Well, you know, I love this approach that you're using because it's very forensic and diagnostic. I just love it because from all those are many of the components that I use when I'm evaluating the crime scene and the behavior of different types of people to determine, you know, what's inculpatory, what's exculpatory. So I, I think that's I, I love the methodology that you're using. So, you know, what diagnosis would you have to have to be found to be legally insane? So it's not so much the diagnosis, although almost all successful, not guilty by reason of insanity or the NGRI we referred to earlier, almost all successful defendants are psychotic at the time of the crime. And that might mean psychotic, meaning they're out of touch with reality. And that could, again, include a a diagnosis of schizophrenia, of schizoaffective disorder, um, severe major depression or bipolar disorder are the most common. So I like the acronym that you use, the NGRI, meaning not guilty by reason of insanity. So then how is the insanity defense used? Well, one of the interesting things about this is that somebody can have any one of these diagnoses and still be found legally sane because it's not just they have a diagnosis. It's that it was because of this diagnosis that they committed the crime. So we have to take it one step further. So we all know that we all get mad. We all get frustrated. And somebody with bipolar disorder can be mad and frustrated and hurt somebody and it have nothing to do with their mental illness. They're just mad. So we have to, to somehow link that mental illness and the symptoms of that mental illness at the time of the offense with that offense in order for them to be found legally insane. So, so Joni, people that... that- do have that are psychotic and and they do have these you know severe psychological disorders that that could make them commit violent acts do they also have cogent moments or are they time or are there times in their lives when uh you know they're they're not insane they're not psychotic they're they're actually quite normal or is insanity something that you live 24 7. so again it's so it's so confusing because mental illness is something that depending upon the diagnosis like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or some severe depressions, it tends to kind of come and go, the symptoms do. So we're oftentimes reluctant to say a person is cured of this major mental illness, but certainly it tends to kind of go back and forth or go up and down. And also we know that there are some very effective medications that can control the symptoms. Joni, can I interrupt you just for a second on that? Because you mentioned the medications, and I know you're referring to psychotropic medications, which are mood-altering medications. Can you discuss uh, how the medications uh, can impact the person? Because, you know, as a police officer uh, and as a forensic criminologist, you know, 80% of my caseload, 100% of your caseload deals with, you know, people with mental problems. 80% of mine do, but they're always with really you know, serious repercussions. And some of these people are on psychotropic meds and some people aren't. Can you talk about, first of all, what is the purpose of psychotropic medications? And then what can be the problems uh, with psychotropic medications or not taking them? Well, the purpose is to essentially help that person feel and act normal. 
That's the bottom line. People oftentimes, for example, think, I don't want to take an antidepressant because I'll, I don't want to be high or I don't want to be happy all the time or I don't want to feel not feel anything. And that's not true. If you have a clinical depression and you respond to an antidepressant, you're going to feel like most people feel every day. You're going to feel normal. And it's kind of the same way when you're talking about antipsychotic medication. Um, one of the challenges, of course, is that you have side effects with some of these medications, which is why a lot of times you'll see this kind of revolving door where somebody, they come in to a hospital, they're psychotic, they get on their medication, they've been off their medication, they get on their medication, they are stable, they, they act just like you and I do, they go back out. For a while, they take their medication, but gosh, I'm feeling so good now, and I don't like this side effect. I'm gaining weight. I feel kind of sluggish. I don't think I need this medication anymore. Boy, you're singing my song. I <laughs> absolutely, you've hit the nail on the head. Absolutely. I don't need the medication anymore. I'm just fine. And then they start to decompensate. Exactly. And then I run into them, or one yes. of the officers in the field run into them, and it never works out well. It does not work out well. And so, you know, it's such a struggle. And, I, you know, and I do understand. I've talked to many inmates. I've talked to many, to many clients and patients that, especially some of the antipsychotics, you know, some of the side effects aren't that pleasant. Yeah. And the other part of it is there are few um, mental illnesses like bipolar disorder that can feel pretty darn good. Right. Particularly in the beginning. And so, really, do you want to take something that kind of makes you feel normal when you feel like a super person when you're not on it? So there's some understandable challenges, but it can result in some serious problems. Yeah, and I don't think, uh, unless you're a psychotic person or you're a psychologist or psychiatrist, I don't think the average uh, person understands how challenging it is in, in the world of you know psychopharmacology to to try to get these people properly balanced, right? I think you you alluded to it, saying you know the, the, there's issues with psychotropic or antipsychotic medications. There's side effects, and and it's sort of a balancing act, isn't it? And your point is so well taken that unfortunately the primary strategy is almost a trial and error. Right. And that's frustrating. And that's unfortunate you know? because you know the, it, you, you you want a scientific basis for what you know for what you're doing, but whatever you're doing is affecting behavior in one sense or another, right? It is. It is. And people well, people often say, "I feel like a guinea pig." Well, so how do uh, forensic psychologists like like yourself do evaluate what are the persons insane? Now, I know that you said you you know you go through a lot of different records and and things. Tell us a little bit about the interview process when you sit down uh, with the subject in question. I mean, what what is that interview process like, and what types of things, uh, either language or behavioral uh, things? When I don't know if you do a cognitive behavioral interview or a kinesic interview, how do you sit down with the person to to make that evaluation? Well, the first thing I would have done, as I've mentioned before, is reviewed as many records as possible because right. you need to know what other information you have and you can compare it to what that person is telling you. So hopefully I have this strong knowledge base before I talk to that person. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to open to ask the most open-ended questions possible. I'm going to ask that person, for example, at the beginning to give me a complete account of what happened because I want to see how that person's story is before I start asking that person any questions. And then I'm going to interview them about all the history, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm going to interview them at length about their memories, 
uh, what they thought would happen, um, when they first thought about it, how they thought their victim felt, what emotions they think that person felt. I want to get a clear understanding of what that person remembers and what they're telling me. What kind of red flags are you looking for, Joni, that, that leads you to assess or evaluate, you know, okay, we've got a person suffering from this particular disorder or that particular disorder. And then, you know, having the disorder is one thing, but then, you know, getting to the standard of proof for insanity, I would think is, is, is something uh, related, but quite different on, on a higher level, is it not? It absolutely is. And so one of the things, for example, that I always am looking for is, did this person try to cover this up in any way? A consciousness there any, of guilt, right? A exactly. Is there guilt. any evidence they planned? Did they try to run away after it happened? So all of those, if I find some of those red flags, that's just information for me that's kind of like, yeah, this person might be mentally ill, but this has given me some indication that perhaps this person is not going to meet the didn't appreciate right from wrong. Because, which is, a, you know, a, a critical piece of proving insanity. It's not that you have, just that you have schizophrenia or, or any other diagnosis. It's that because of this, um, you didn't appreciate what right or wrong. And a, a quick case comes to mind. Yeah, I uh, want to hear that. That would be That wonderful. I think would, would really kind of illustrate this. Um, and it was really, what was sad about this case was that it was not even, I met this person in prison and his defense attorney never even considered an insanity plea. And when I heard his story, it, I was thinking if there's anybody who could have met this, it's this particular person. Um, this was a, a young man who had uh, a couple of children. He was working two or three jobs to kind of make ends meet. He was also doing a lot of child care. He was really stretched and he was drinking a lot of Red Bulls because he was tired all the time. And he had some mental illness in his family and he be began uh, develop becoming more and more agitated. He began sleeping less and less, um, became more irritable. And then after a period of time, he began talking about all these kind of religious factors. He'd never been a particularly religious person, didn't go to church, but he began really expressing again, some kind of religious beliefs about Abraham and Isaac. And you and I probably both know that story mm -hmm. um, that Abraham, you know, is required by God or asked by God to sacrifice his son to show his devotion to him. And so this particular individual develops this belief that God is taught, not, not just a belief, he is hearing voices from God saying, you are the modern day Abraham. I need you to prove your love to me by sacrificing your son. So he does a lot of things. He goes to a couple of churches. He goes and buys candles. He is developing all these elaborate rituals. He takes his son and his wife, who didn't know what was going on, to this um, graveyard. I'm not sure what this, I can't remember the symbolism there, what that meant. And he gets a knife and cuts his son. Luckily, there was no he didn't kill him, but he cuts his son and his wife, of course, screams and is calling the police and he cuts himself because he feels like he needs to show that he's the same as his son in the eyes of the Lord. Um, she calls the police and he's sitting there. He, he thinks he has done nothing wrong other than fulfilling God's promise. How old was the son, Joni? He was eight. Wow. And it was just a really tragic case. And so, yeah, the police came and this particular person has, has shown absolutely no attempt to hide what he's done, no attempt to escape. He's sitting there waiting, you know, for the police and explains to them in full detail exactly why he did what he did. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. Can you give us another case? 
let me think of another case that I got, was involved in. Um, there was a case, oh, I can think of a, of a case of a woman who, um, and these are obviously, unfortunately, pretty grim, pretty grim cases, um, where a woman was charged in a fetal abduction case. And I don't know if you're familiar, you probably are familiar with that, but most people are not. It's a, you know, it's a pretty rare but increasing phenomenon where this woman literally kidnaps a pregnant woman and removes the fetus from this woman. Okay, did, and, she, did she kill the woman? Yes. Okay. And then yes. removes the fetus, right? Postmortem. Yes. Okay. Yes. And, and, and so what the, happens? And the fetus survived and she pretended like this was her baby. And when she got caught, which she did pretty quickly because it was a neighbor and there was all kinds of, you know, connections in terms of them meeting each other and getting together, et cetera. She claimed that she had um, multiple personality disorder and that it was not, she was not the one who committed this act. It was an alter who committed this act. Now, in evaluating her, one of the things that we have to always consider, and I know that I'm speaking to the choir here when I say this to you, is malingering or faking. Yes. Is this person faking? And one of the things that we know is that mental illnesses don't just appear once you've committed a crime. You know, right. it's like. Right, there has so, to be some presentations before. Exactly. Like a history of mental health problems. Exactly. <laughs> and so, I mean, it would be nice for some defendants maybe if that happened. But in reality, the, one of the things we look for, particularly in evaluating malingering, is, okay, what is the evidence? Um, you know, I, I've evaluated a defendant who had been involuntarily hospitalized, you know, 27 times. He had an incredible history of Psych, you know, psychosis, et cetera. This particular person had absolutely zero. She had never seen a therapist. She had never seen uh, a psychiatrist. She'd never been on medication. There was absolutely no indication. None of her family members reported any kind of deterioration, decompensation. And so here was the case. I did, oh, I also did some psychological testing with her. And, it, you, you know, you think that these illnesses are pretty easy to fake, and they really aren't. Because most people have no idea of what it's like to have a major mental illness. Well, and so they just make one, mistakes. One that, especially one that chooses multiple personalities. To <laughs> me, that would seem to be the most complex uh, hoax that you could think of. I would just pick, if it was me, I'd just pick a standard, well, I'm manic or depressed, right? <laughs> I wouldn't pick the last one I'd pick as multiple personalities. Yeah, and I think the challenge for this was there was so much evidence that she was the person who did it. Right. That I think she kind of felt like, okay, my really my only possibility is to say, okay, my body did it, but my alter didn't. Like I didn't really do it, but somebody in my body did it. And so it was absolutely clear to me on a lot of different levels that this person was m malingering, which is, of course, the fancy term for faking it. Okay, so Joni, you said psychological tests. Can you give us a couple of examples of psychological tests that you ran this uh, this woman through to, to help you with your evaluation and assessment? There's a couple of t tests. One, of course, is the MMPI-2, which is the most widely used psychological test probably in the world. Is that the, the 600, uh, you know, question test, three questions asked, or I'm sorry, you know, 200 questions asked, but three different ways? 
Well, it's 600 and something questions. You're right. It takes a long time. You have to have a certain reading level, but it's not that. It's like a sixth grade reading level to be able to do it. But one of the nice things about this, and it's interesting because this particular test was not developed for forensic purposes, but it's been used, you know, in a lot of forensic settings because it has validity scales, meaning it can really tell you that ask certain questions that if you answer yes to are like red flags to the examiner that this person is either trying to what we call fake bad, meaning appear to be more ill than they are, or fake good, meaning denying that they have any kind of problems. And of course, in a criminal arena, it's usually the fake bad that you see. And by the way, Joni, I don't know if you know this, but that is a standard psychological battery test for police officers. So I've taken that test Ah. a couple of three times, Uh, but I passed it. So don't, don't get worried. (laughs) <laughs> I, I had no doubt that you would have passed that. Um, another just quick test that is really interesting is called the um, Structured Interview Response Scale. And what's really interesting about that, now it's not that helpful in, in insanity pleas only because it looks at a person, what they're claiming now, what symptoms they're claiming now. But some people, interestingly enough, who are saying I was insane at the time of this crime, believe they still have to appear to be insane. And so this question, this test is kind of interesting because it will ask questions. So for example, um, have you ever felt that people were following you? And the person might say, yes. And then you say, did you experience an increase in appetite during those times? Now, in reality, I've never met anybody who is paranoid that got hungrier when they were paranoid. So it asks a lot of questions of symptoms that don't go together. Well, I was just going to say, Joni, if you'd asked me those questions, I'd have been totally confused. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> How did I feel hungry at the time? Exactly, because that's not consistent with any mental illness that we know of. Exactly. Well, listen, Joni, I've got so many more questions for you. Uh, let's take one more break and come back as soon as we can. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist, and my favorite board-certified forensic psychologist, Dr. Joni Johnson. You're listening to A Threat of Evidence on America Out Loud. Well, the Out Loud perspective awaits you in life, love, politics, a healthy lifestyle, your faith, personal development, and living an out loud life on AmericaOutloud.com. Glitch your news and entertainment network where you can listen 24-7 on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. We're back with Dr. Joni Johnson and Dr. Ron Martinelli, and we've been talking about the insanity defense. So, Joni, here's a a question for you. Can psychologists make mistakes when they evaluate insanity? Yes, we can. So how, okay, so my follow-up question to that would be, how does that happen? So, so, you know, and you know what, let me just... preface the question by, by asking this. You know, I've heard so many times that psychology is is half science and half art. Let's talk about that first. 
You know, I think that's true. I think we've worked really hard as a discipline to get closer to science, recognizing that some things are always going to be a judgment call when we're talking about things like violence risk and those kind of things. But I do think that some of the mistakes that are made um, aren't so much a matter of the art part of it, is, is, is failing to follow the science that we know. Well, let's go in that direction. And why don't you explain that? Okay. So for example, we were talking a lot on this show about the fact that in order for somebody to be found not guilty by reason of insanity, having a major mental illness is just step one. That's just the beginning for us. We now have to look at, okay, what was that person experiencing? What symptoms at the time? And how if at all, did those symptoms lead that person to commit this crime? And one of the things I see over and over again in reports when I'm testifying um, is doctors who or psychologists who stop. They'll say, oh, this person had a mental disorder. This person was psychotic at the time. And again, that's not what the courts are asking. The courts are saying, did this mental disorder cause this person to not be able to appreciate the right, you know, that they were right or wrong or appreciate the, the consequences of their action. So that's a big picture part of it. And then when you look at specifics as part of the evaluation, um, I've kind of been amazed sometimes. I've read reports where the person never even interviewed the defendant. Um, I've certainly read plenty of reports where they just interviewed the defendant and never asked witnesses, family members, to see if they could corroborate what the person was saying. Oh, that, and that, that's crazy. That would be like an investigator not following the evidence and not following up with evidence that they see right in front of them. Well, I think what happens sometimes is, you know, clinicians, they're two completely different roles. If you're a clinician, you're taking what that person says at face value. And if the person is lying to you, you know, your attitude really is pretty much, okay, I'm going to take where this person is. If they're lying to me, hopefully at some point that will come out and we'll deal with it. But I'm in a treating mindset. A forensic person is saying, no, my job is to kind of ferret out as much as I can the truth. So I might, I'm going to interview that person and ask them all kinds of questions, but I need to, again, like you said, follow other leads, find out if all the other information I have is consistent with what this person is telling me. And I think sometimes clinicians get pulled into this forensic psychology role and they, they're just kind of confused about the difference in those two. Well, you know, that's so interesting because for me as a forensic investigator, and I just know you're, you're, you're cut from the same piece of, piece of cloth, it's a reconciliation process of, of, of statements, circumstances, facts, and forensic evidence. You've, you're, you're getting, you can't make credibility statements just because the person tells you one thing. The, you know, if you were just to go with that, that would be making a credibility statement. Rather than that, you've got to seek out all the evidence. You, every source of, of evidence where you can uncover information and reconcile that uh, with the representations of, of the person that you're trying to evaluate. Are they insane? Are they not insane? You know, are they aware that what they did was wrong, not? Are they malingering? That's all part of the reconciliation process. Wouldn't you agree? I would absolutely agree. I don't know if you remember the 
Ken Bianchi, the Hillside Strangler case. Oh, um, let me tell you. Yes, of course. And, and as a matter of fact, my my wife, Linda, uh, who's on, uh, you know, talking while married with me on America Out Loud. I don't know if you know this, but she worked undercover for the Los Angeles Police Department as a prostitute during the Hillside Strangler case. So Linda knows backwards and forwards about the Bianchi case. Well, I had no idea. That's incredibly impressive. You need to talk with her sometime about that. It's an I, amazing, I would love amazing to. conversation. Well, one of the things, that you, and I'm sure Linda remembers this, is that during the trial, I mean, mental health professionals really got a black eye because Kim Bianchi faked multiple personality disorder. And he actually convinced, I can't remember if it was two or three psychiatrists, that, that he had this disorder. And he absolutely did not have it. And finally, how he was caught is another psychiatrist who I think was a little more skeptical. And the, the interesting part of this is the other two psychiatrists, if I'm remembering correctly, never did any kind of, again, investigation in terms of was there any evidence of this? Had anybody ever seen him act differently or these switches or whatever? And this person basically um, kind of debunked him by suggesting that, you know, you've talked about Steve, which I think was his altar he was talking about. But, you know, it's my experience that almost every person with this disorder has at least three altars. Well, lo and behold, the next time he saw him, another altar emerged. And so he ended up, Ken Bianchi ended up eventually just kind of confessing that the whole thing was just complete, you know, a complete fabrication. Just absolutely amazing. Well, Joni, are there any recent cases that come to mind? One thing that pops in my head right away is the case of Jake Patterson, who has been accused of kidnapping um, Jamie Kloss and killing her parents. And um, it's my understanding that he is currently considering the insanity plea. And just the little bit that I know about the facts, he has an extremely tough road to hoe here. He is somebody who, and I think the reason they're considering it is because he has no criminal record. So they're saying, okay, there must be something else. And he led kind of a quiet, unassuming life before all this happened. His problem, and he has many of them, is there is so much evidence that he planned this, which is not something that you would expect with somebody who was psychotic or legally insane. And also, he took so many steps to avoid detection. Right. So so we have the stock. And it, was this the case in Iowa or some out in the Midwest? Was, was it not, Joni, out in the Midwest someplace? It was out in the Midwest. I'm thinking, I'm trying to remember where exactly it was. It was a flyover state, from from what I from what I recall. But what what I do recall, and I'm glad you're bringing this case up because for me as an investigator, I'd think this would be a hard road to hoe because you've got the stalking behavior. Because he did, from my recollection, he repeatedly stalked her. But there's a lot of consciousness of guilt in that he's you know took her to a different location, uh, you know sequestered her. Uh, to me. That, that's well planned, planned out, that that doesn't give me an indication of insanity whatsoever. No, it really doesn't. And I think it was actually Wisconsin, if I'm remembering correctly. Okay. So it, it definitely was a Midwestern state. And, you know, I can't imagine that they're actually going to 
go through with this. I think 70% of the time, defense attorneys will throw that out at the beginning of a case as a possibility, and then they'll have somebody evaluate their defendant, and the evaluator kind of says, good luck, basically. There's just no evidence here. This is not going to work. So I would anticipate that if this is being considered, I would be very surprised if this person or the defense attorney pursued that. And, but again, when we're talking about it, you see how the thinking works in terms of, okay, what is the evidence this was planned? We have tons of evidence that appears that this was clearly planned. We have evidence that he um, took some extra steps to leave no DNA when he killed her parents. I mean, these are not, again, things that you would expect with somebody who's criminally insane. Oh, that, that's so interesting. So, you know, talking about insanity, Joni, what are some of the common misconceptions about insanity and maybe the insanity defense? I think, you know, a really common one is that it's often used, that it's frequent. And you started out the show just debunking that, meaning that we know that less than 1% of defendants ever plead not guilty by reason of insanity. And the reason for that is because it is very, very unlikely to succeed. So we know that, again, that of this less than 1%, only 15 to 25% are successful. And of those that are successful, we had this picture in our heads of these dueling experts, right? They're in front of the jury, the prosecutor saying, no, this person is not insane. The um, prosecutor's um, expert, the defense expert is saying, yes, it is. In reality, 90% of these are agreed upon by both the prosecutor and the defense. Oh, that's interesting. Because, you know, and later, you know, you, you sort of alluded to the expert that, that is, as you and I understand as experts, is referred to as the rebuttal expert. I've got a question I'm going to hold back uh, for a little bit later for you. But, you know, Joni, what happens if a, if a person's found not guilty by reason and insanity? What happens to that person? That, that's another misconception, isn't it? That, that they, they're, they get to walk out of the courtroom free. It really, really is. And I'm so glad that you asked that question because it's understandable that we would all be outraged to think that somebody who's committed particularly a violent crime would just be let out because of some, you know, of some mental illness or, or some lack of judgment or whatever we want to call it, they would call it. But in reality, um, you know, it might be a get out of jail free card in that you might escape jail, but you're going to spend a significant amount of time in a forensic hospital. And a lot of times, most of the time, these commitments are indefinite. Well, so you know, we had uh, John Hinckley Jr. that there was, you know, a recent article about and, uh, and, and people don't remember, but but John Hinckley Jr. Uh, had the fixation with Jodie Foster. He's the person that that uh, tried to assassinate Ronald Reagan. I think it was what back in 1981. And uh, and he did an insanity plea. Joni, why don't you talk a little bit about Hinckley? So John Hinckley probably had more to do with today's insanity defense than any individual uh, in the past 100 years. And the reason really? for that is absolutely. And the reason for that is because we all watched this shooting and we were all horrified, you know, to, to think that somebody was trying to assassinate our president and hurt and permanently disabled another person. And so here's somebody who we've all seen, you know, the, the news footage, and then he goes on trial and he is found not guilty by reason of insanity. And people were absolutely outraged. And what you had happened after that is that many states um, passed stricter insanity uh, laws. 
A few states abolished it completely. And so it is really much, much harder now to successfully plead not guilty by reason of insanity than it was before him. And I think a lot of that is just people were just so outraged. Well, Joni, you you just told me something that I I wasn't aware of. Are you saying that there are some states in the United States that don't even have an insanity defense plea anymore? There are some states that don't have the insanity. And what is, what is, yes. And what is, as a matter of fact, that's such an interesting point because this past Monday, the Supreme Court agreed for the first time to hear a case um, where the defense attorney is, argues that um, this defendant was in a state, was in Kansas, and Kansas does not allow you to use the insanity plea. It does allow you to present some evidence that your mental illness had something to do or was an influence on your crime, but it does not have the clear insanity defense. And so the defense attorney is saying, my client was wronged because he didn't have the opportunity to present this insanity defense. And so for the first time, the Supreme Court will be addressing the issue of, is it an American right to be able to plead insanity. We have no idea what's going to happen with that. Well, boy, I am certain that psychologists and psychiatrists will be actively following that case. That That's just amazing. Joni, I, I don't know if I have the facts right on this, but do you remember Chapman who killed uh, John Lennon in, uh, in, in New York? Was it Chapman that, that killed John Lennon? I think it was Chapman that killed John Lennon. Did, did he go insanity plea and was was he found insane after killing John Lennon and was he uh was he placed in a psychiatric facility do you know any do you remember anything about that case I don't I cannot remember if this was an insanity plea well you know what you and I are going to have to go back over that case at another time and just kind of look that case up uh because that one kind of struck me as another guy that had plead you know had pled uh in the insanity defense but let me ask you this question as a follow-up so you know, how often does someone who's been found uh, to be legally insane has been uh, placed in a mental institution, subsequently released, uh, how often does someone like that re- reoffend? It's such an interesting statistic. So there was a 2016 study done in Connecticut, and they found that only 2% of the individuals who were released were rearrested for committing another crime. So 16% were rearrested um, before their parole, and they were followed, I think, between four and eight years after they were released. And so one of the things that really I didn't even know before I went to, to work in a prison, and you probably already knew this, is that the vast majority of people who return to prison don't commit another crime. They violate their parole. And so they may do things like drink or do a drug or not take their medication, or just not check in with their parole officer. And these are the things that are most likely to wind people back up in jail. And so when you look at these, at the um, NGRI insanity equities, you do find that, again, a very low percentage of them are even rearrested because of these parole violations, and only 2% are arrested for a violent crime. So we know that they actually have a lower recidivism rate than other offenders. Well, that's interesting. Listen, Joni, we've only got a few minutes left, but one of the things that I want to ask you as a forensic expert, and I know you testify in court, 
Tell us what it's like for someone like you, board-certified psychologist, either a regular witness or a rebuttal witness. What's that like for you testifying on the stand? What are the challenges for you, and what's it like being on the hot seat? And, you know, it's really interesting, especially if it's a, if it's a case that I, you know, feel very confident in, in my findings, which is most of the cases, but also that I have a kind of a, um, you know, I, I feel comfortable with what the the, the case is about. And so in criminal cases, I find it to be a lot easier to testify um, because I think the stakes are a little bit different. And when we're talking about insanity, um, testifying about insanity, one of the challenges that I have, I think, is overcoming and helping jurors understand kind of the facts versus the story. Because as we all know, we can sit here and talk about the lack of, you know, the low rate of recidivism and major mental illness. But when a jury is hearing about somebody who killed people, a lot of times jurors feel like somebody's got to pay. Yeah. You know, there's regardless. The, the, ex exactly. There, you know, of course, in everything I deal with, usually someone's dead or seriously injured. And so as a forensic expert, uh, I try to synthesize very complicated issues and bring it down to the level uh, where the jury can understand it and connect the dots, sort of the KISS principle, you know, keep it simple, stupid, even though I'm dealing with complex issues. But then the other thing that uh, I have to be very careful about in my presentation of the evidence is that you have the emotional argument versus the forensic one, right? And, and sometimes either way, the people the juries become sort of emotionally captured uh, with the story and uh, don't always follow the forensic evidence, right? Or it, you, you know what I mean by that? I, absolutely. Yeah, and, and so that, that tends to be, you know, a little bit of a challenge. But listen, Joni, we've got just a couple of more minutes. Let's talk about Dr. Joni Johnson and your private practice. Uh, it, can you tell us a little bit about that and uh, what types of things that you specialize that are in your wheelhouse and how people get a hold of, of Dr. Johnson? I do a ton of different things, which I love all of them. So, you know, one of my favorite things to do is I go into prisons and I do violence risk assessments. Um, and I really do enjoy that because it helps me help, I think, the prison system evaluate who's ready to be released. Um, it helps me balance out the rights of the of the person up for parole with the safety of the community. Um, and then I also do quite a few insanity evaluations, competency to stand trial evaluations. And then I oftentimes will see individuals who have just gotten out of prison and who are trying to kind of reintegrate into the community, which is certainly a challenge. Well, I'll tell you what, I am so proud to have you on our forensic death investigations team staff. You know, you're not only a great co-host uh, for a threat of evidence, but you just have a wheelhouse and, and a brilliance that is just amazing. And I just want to thank you so much for being on the show. Joni, give yourself a plug. How do people get a hold of Dr. Joni Johnston? Uh, besides through Martinelli and Associates, Justice and Forensic Consultants, how do they get a hold of Dr. Joni? Probably the easiest way is to go to my website, which is drjonijohnston.com. And, and do it again. So Dr. Joni Johnston. Drjonijohnston.com. Dr. <laughs> my phone number is on there. You can email me, and I'm happy to answer any questions that people would have. You know what? That's fantastic. Listen, you're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist, and my favorite co-host, Dr. Joni Johnson, board-certified forensic psychologist. You're listening to A Threat of Evidence on America 